The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Good morning, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to episode 141 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. And oh my goodness, this is a first ever for the show. We have a special two-for-one episode. One episode, but two authors. And not just two authors, because we've done that before, but this time you're getting two books. Two chapters. It's incredible. I can't wait to get over to that. I had so much fun speaking with Nate Granzow and Matt Snyder. These guys are, are good friends who have been uh, been writing for some time. Matt is the rookie, while Nate is the experienced author with uh, several books under his belt. As it happens, when uh, when Matt Snyder came up with his first book, Nate Granzow had his, uh, I think it was his eighth book. I think this one's his eighth book. Uh, and they decided to put them out at the same time that's why they're here today and it is a it is a blast talking with them we had a really good time uh, we discussed uh, how they met at a writing club critiquing each other's work uh, getting validation from the readers we talk about the incredible research that goes into a writer's book and how sometimes movie speeches can really amp you up thank you al pacino <laughs> There's that and so much more, uh, not to mention, how many times can I say the word fantastic? <laughs> At least one more time, because it's a fantastic episode, and uh, one that I cannot wait to get us on over to. That's coming up here in just a couple of minutes, so stay tuned for that. I also wanted to take a moment and uh, let everybody know about a... I, I don't normally advertise far ahead, right? I don't normally say... You know, hey, uh, stay tuned in a couple of weeks. We got this thing going on, or we got this author coming in, uh, that kind of thing, unless it's something I know for sure. Well, I have a special treat coming up October 20th, and I already know it's coming because I've already done the interview. <laughs> and I am very excited to announce that actor Lou Diamond Phillips will be our guest author for that episode. Uh, Lou has. His debut novel, The Tinderbox, Soldier of Indira, comes out later in October, and a couple of days before that's released is when he will be here on the show. I had a blast interviewing him, and I cannot wait to share that with you. So I'm not going to go into it too much right now. just wanted to make that announcement. And you my, you, my listeners, are the first to hear about it before I post anything on social media and let anybody know. So to make sure you tell your friends and uh, get in there and check out that book. It's it's really incredible. Uh, they were kind enough to send me an advanced copy, so I'm diving into that right now as we speak. <laughs> I cannot wait to share that very fun episode with you. Meanwhile, I also want to say thank you to our sponsors, starting with Scribner, my favorite writing software. I use it every day, writing on the, uh, the books that I'm working on uh, with my most recent one, very, very close to being done. Uh, I'm hoping, hoping here in the next week or two, I can actually give you a release date. Uh, I'm that close. But I do all of my writing on Scrivener. I have all of my projects on there, which makes it a lot of fun. Because it doesn't matter which project I want to work on. I have it right there. They're broken down by chapters. I have all my character information. Anything I need, research-wise, is within reach. 
So, hey, check out this advertisement for Scrivener and pay particular attention to the coupon code so that you can save 20% on the regular desktop version. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. I also want to thank my friends at the podcast networks that I'm a proud partner with, starting with Pop Goes the Culture Network. Your home for everything pop culture, geek news, anything in the nerdiverse. <laughs> That's a word, isn't it? <laughs> uh, suffice to say, anything pop culture related, you're going you're gonna to find it there at popgoesaculture.com. Home to, I believe it's now 10, 10 shows, uh, all of them in that same realm, uh, whether it's movies, gaming, you know, whatever. Anything pop culture, it's all there at your fingertips. So check them out in the show notes. Click that link and hop on over to Pop Goes the Culture Network. And find yourself a few more, a few extra shows that I know you're going to love. I also want to thank Project Entertainment Network, home to more than 35 shows now. At that network, a variety of shows, to say the least. Anything from horror to faith, uh, lots of writing shows. There's comedy debate shows, classic monster movies. Uh, discussions going on, all kinds of shows over at the Project Entertainment. Shows like this one you're about to hear. Are you so tired of having your own thoughts? Are you just totally exhausted having your own beliefs on every single thing in the entire world? Well, don't worry. Here at Your New Opinion, we do the thinking for you. Join Ryan, Nick, and Ben. As the boys debate topics that we probably know nothing about, using every dirty trick they can think of to win. Everything from if net neutrality is good or bad, to cake versus pie, to who killed JFK. So if you're looking to never have your own thoughts again, check out your new opinion every Friday. Once again, make sure you click that link in the show notes for Project Entertainment Network, and you can find that show and all the others right there at your fingertips and uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that uh, whenever you find ones that you like leave them reviews and and don't forget to also follow all of us on social media scrivener pop goes the culture and project entertainment we're all on social media uh, facebook twitter instagram uh, we all post pretty regularly on all of those platforms so make sure you're following us there if you'd like to reach out to the show you can do so via email at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com or if, uh, if you'd rather just give me a call, you can leave a voicemail at 660-851-1146. And as always, if you do that, I'm gonna, I'll am gonna give you a shout out and I'll probably play it on an upcoming episode. Alright, so we have all of that in the books. Without further ado, let's hop on over to our interview with our guests, Nate Granzow and Matt Snyder. 
Hello, Sample Chapter listeners. Welcome to, I, you know, I say this a lot. I say it's an exciting episode, but this week is one I'm very excited about because I'm doing something I've never done before. Yes, I've had two authors on here previously, but never two authors with two separate books. But they're coming out the same day, and they are good friends. Welcome to the show, <laughs> Nate Grenzel and Matt Snyder. Welcome to the show, Hi. guys. Thank hey, you. we sure appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be on. <laughs> this is this is so unique and such a such a uh, interesting thing that you're doing now. I guess let's start off first here, Nate. I know you are a Minnesota outdoorsman, award-winning novelist and editor, and you love the smell of gunpowder, the taste of gin, and the feel of leather-bound books. But what what do we not know about you? Oh, I, I'm an open book. Yeah, you, you know everything there is to know now. Um, no, I, I'm I've been uh, writing novels for boy probably the last ten or fifteen years. I started right when I got out of college. Um, it started as kind of a just a, a fun little hobby just to see if I could even do it. I took a class in college that challenged us to write a, uh, a short novel, um, a novella within the span of one semester, which is, you know, that's a kind of a, a, a tall order. But I, I really got into it. I got up early and started, you know, kind of creating habits for myself and, and realizing just how much fun it was for me to write this. And I thought, well, from a novella to a novel, it doesn't take too much to, you know, even that out and push it the rest of the way. So. I've been doing it a long time, and I'm I'm still learning. I have no illusions that uh, each each novel I publish, I, I like to think I get a little bit better. Um, but yeah, it's just it's uh, that's that's one of my passions. It's one of the the things that creative outlet that I need. That's awesome, and and I mean, what a great start with the uh, the Scorpion's Nest that was selected as uh, one of the finalists in Amazon's Breakthrough Novel Awards. That's uh, quite the achievement, right out the gate. Yeah, it was um, that I, I've learned a lot since that novel. I mean, um, obviously, and, and you, you know this too, I'm sure the uh, the whole process is one of those. It, it's a, a mammoth undertaking. And, and as you continue to hone your craft, you start to realize, you know, just how, uh, how much there is to, to learn. And I guess at that point, I was still just feeling it out. And I, I, I still like the book. I still feel like I'm you know, proud of it. But I I kind of smile when I think about just how far I've come from, you know, the 10 years ago or 15 years ago, however long it's been. But yeah, that was a great way to kick things off was uh, getting selected. I think as I remembered, I was surprised by that, you know, getting that feedback. So that was, it was definitely exciting. Absolutely. Well, Matt, uh, we're going to be hearing from your debut novel today and, and uh, I'm sure we have just as much hopes for the same, uh, same for you. Oh, absolutely. I hope so. That sounds great. I'll take anything I can get. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, you know, a big dream of mine. That's true, I think, of most writers, right? So um, this has been a really exciting exercise. And Nate's right. You know, there's a lot of work to do, even once you get the uh, novel figured out itself. Uh, plenty to get it in the hands of readers. So uh, I'm, I'm on the, uh, the learning curve, too, mostly over the hump now. Um, both of us have a little bit of a background in editing and, and publishing. So those skills kind of came in handy. But uh, it's always something new to learn, like Dave says. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things we have in common is that uh, we're both uh, later day Cold War kids, uh, reading comic books and watching James Bond till late in the evening. Uh, what else can we can you tell us about you? Sure. Uh, yeah, those are all true. I uh, my brother used to keep a collection of comic books in a, in a full size uh, trash can, uh, like something that Oscar the Grouch would sit inside of, and uh, I loved it. You know, that's that's where I learned a lot of the things that I'm a fan of now still. Um, 
But outside of that, you know, uh, I uh, pretend to be a, a garage band musician once in a while. Uh, I'm, a, I'm pretty much a hack, but I, I, I have aspirations anyway. And uh, Nate plays guitar too, so we both share that a little bit in the music background. Uh, yep. And uh, we both also do a little bit of photography, so we're always looking for some creative outlet. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, how did you two, how did this become uh, like a little bit of a, I don't know, is this like a partnership or how, how did you all get to know each other, I guess? Yeah, Matt, I'll tackle this one. Okay, go for um, it. We started out, we first met working in uh, in publishing, like Matt said, we kind of have a background as uh, editors and we, so we met each other years and years ago. And uh, at some point we needed somebody to join our, uh, our writers group that Matt was not a part of at the time. And I thought he'd be a great fit. So from there, um, he's been a, a key part of a kind of a small uh, writers group. We we get together frequently and we uh, we uh, critique each other's work and give each other feedback. And so he's he's really become a, uh, a writing mentor for me. And uh, since then, you know, when when he uh, told me that he was getting ready to publish um, the Hidden Vector, I, I thought you know this is too good an opportunity for me to miss uh, by being slow to the table to get my next book published. So I, I quick uh, knocked out as many edits as I could in a short time so that we could uh, publish cooperatively and launch our books together. That's wow. right. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you don't see that too often. Uh, we were discussing before the show a little bit about, you know, the, the theme that we all believe in, which is the rising tide uh, raises all ships. And I think this is a really, really awesome uh, venture that the two of you are doing together that you're, you're helping each other out. You got a lot of crossover. So this is going to, I can only see good things coming from this. Yeah, absolutely. This has uh, been exciting for me to have a, a partner in crime here on the launch. And uh, you know, like, like Nate says, we've been working together for uh, gosh, it's been at least six years now uh, on, in our writers group. And we're, you know, we're, we're the two guys who like to talk about thrillers. So we, we sort of sit in the same camp. Our, our works are a little different, but we're very familiar with each other's writing. And I think that uh, probably helped both of us get to this point because uh, we've both critiqued and edited the, the works we're launching. So uh, we both know them very well and we couldn't be ex more excited. It's going to be awesome. Fantastic. So Nate, what, uh, how many books do you have right now in your past? It, it looks like at least uh, five, six. Yeah, this is actually number eight for me. Wow. <laughs> Matt had brought that up the other day and it kind of caught me off guard. I guess I hadn't, I hadn't really been keeping track, but I try to put one out uh, just about every year. I, I've missed a couple of uh, a couple of times there as far as that frequency, but I try to generate a book about once a year. That seems like a, a comfortable pace for me. So, yeah, it, it's um, it, it's still exciting for me. You know, this is still, and I still am faced with all those same uh, all those same uh, self conscious fears about you know, is it adequate? Is it good enough? And by the time that I get ready to push a book out, I hate it. You know, I absolutely <laughs> despise the book. I've read it so many times and and just meticulously poured over every single word. And after a while, you just get tired of it. Nothing feels original or clever anymore. The parts that are funny, you know, that were funny originally, now you don't find humor in them anymore. So that's usually my metric for when I, I realize, you know, it's probably time to go ahead and push that out the door because it's not, it's not going to get better. It, it just needs to, it needs to be in the hands of readers. So yeah, this is, uh, this is number eight. <laughs> Nothing better than that feeling of, I like we, we become so sick of it and we got to get it away, hand it to somebody else who then comes back and like, gosh, that one line you had, man, that just, that slayed me. No, yeah, it's like, so oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's, that's always validating when, when somebody gives you a positive feedback and especially when you're kind of on the fence about it, it it's uh, definitely good to hear that. So now 
with your latest book, it's uh, Get Idiota? Uh, Idiota, yeah. Idiota. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a, a fun romp. This is, uh, you know, if you've seen some of Guy Ritchie's earlier films, uh, it kind of has that, you know, vaguely uh, um, inept, bumbling criminal aspect to it. And it's a little bit of a get-rich-quick scheme. You got the, the straight man that's trying to get his life back on track, and then you have kind of the compulsive thief that's lovable and and then you have some very real uh, nasty characters like a uh, drug cartel leader. So, um, yeah, th- this book, t- just to give a kind of an elevator pitch on it, it's um, it, following it, it essentially focuses on this eccentric Mexican drug cartel leader who has aspirations to become the world foosball champion. But obviously, with a <laughs> reputation like that, with a reputation for killing people, um, he'd never be allowed to compete or host the championships. You know, that's uh, that's just not going to happen. So this down on his luck journalist. And his fixer uh, offered to write the guy's autobiography or his biography, which is uh, the sob story, you know, to help him gain some sympathy and some sense of legitimacy. Uh, but they, they say it's going to cost you $10 million. Now, this is a guy that has more money than he knows what to do with. So buying legitimacy, you know, that's a rare opportunity for him. Hmm. So he accepts, but he ends up pays out with a truckload of pot instead of cash. So all of a sudden, these guys that were already out of their element now have to figure out how to get all of this, this truckload of weed, how do you turn that into your millions of dollars? So the fiasco ensues. And, uh, and before they leave, this fixer, who's a compulsive uh, kleptomaniac, steals the cartel leader's pet emu named Idiota. And so that, that, that's kind of the, the general thrust of what's going on. There's a lot of chaos and other characters that kind of uh, weave themselves into it. But it's, it's supposed to be an enjoyable, fun romp. And, and kind of a look at a, a subtle look at some of the, the socio-political stuff going on in Mexico too. So it's your basic romance is what it sounds oh, like. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I debated yeah. about a shirtless guy on the cover, but yeah. That's, uh... It's uh, it's action, it's adventure, and it's a big damn bird. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh I like that, Matt. I should, I should, I should write that down. <laughs> that's a great blurb right there <laughs> oh my gosh all right so i gotta i gotta ask the other or the elephant in the room where does an idea like this come from what, what was the spark the uh the catalyst uh, i'm glad you asked that the catalyst uh came from when i don't know if you remember this but when sean penn went down to interview el chapo in mexico and then wrote an article about it in rolling uh rolling stone <laughs> yeah. um I, I remember critiquing that a little bit and taking a hard look at what would compel him to do that. And then, uh, and, th- and it kind of got the, the gears moving a little bit on like, all right, so if, if somebody were to exploit a situation like that, you know, if you did actually get an interview with this kind of elusive, um, you know, this maniac, you know, how could you leverage that to, to improve your fortunes? And, and that, so that was kind of the catalyst that kicked off the idea. And from there, it just, you know, it, I, I pull stuff from the news uh, sometimes it's just one of those random ideas that I come up with, but it, it really came together on this one. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. All right. Uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be uh, starting with the, uh, the first reading today. It's with Nate Grenzel with Get Idiota. It starts when your brother-in-law in his suave, reassuringly confident way casually mentions a promising investment opportunity while at a family barbecue. As you stand there flipping burgers and rolling ballpark franks in your flip-flops and a man apron that loudly proclaims king of the grill and ketchup red, he muses on his investments in real estate, high-end rentals specifically, penthouses, villas, beachfront condos, all with words like exotic and luxury in the listing titles. 
nonchalant as he sips his microbrewed IPA, he throws a few numbers around, big numbers, the kind that make an otherwise skeptical person envision paying off their mortgage a decade early and sending their kids to an Ivy League school. Maybe take the wife on a cruise down to the Danube or upgrade that rusty sedan to something loud and fast. The hooks are in, but the good salesman doesn't get too eager. He has to make this seem like he's let a secret slip, as though this exclusive club doesn't accept investments from just anyone. Oh, I was just talking shop. Look at these kids. They grow up so fast. But interest peak, you pursue. Later, when the wine comes out and the kids are in bed, he pulls you aside for a more clandestine conversation about the details. Nothing too big. A couple grand gets you in at the ground level. That's barely a risk considering the earning potential, you think. Besides, you've known this guy forever. He's family. More importantly, he drives a Maserati and has a closet full of bespoke suits crafted of silk, harvested from biologically superior Italian silkworms. The guy even smells rich. That exclusive bouquet of French cologne, boutique hair products, and professionally laundered undergarments. You cut him a check that night. The first of the returns arrive, and sweet, merciful, Jesus H. Christ, they're big. We're talking 90 Silicon Valley tech startup level earnings. Enron Board of Directors Golden Parachute money. The check clears. You're flush with cash. Fanciful images of blown Voss yachts and gated communities surrounding exclusive golf courses begin to take shape in your mind. An appetizer this delicious can only mean an even more satisfying entree. So you start rummaging beneath the couch cushions, scavenging for lost dimes to invest. Honey, dump the 401k, the IRA, and the mutual funds. Penalties? Who cares? Hell, sell the furniture. We'll get better stuff with the next check. Something fancy sounding like a divan or a credenza. Your brother-in-law, now personal financial consultant and best buddy, pours it on. Emailing listings or rental properties the firm has just purchased. They're nicer than your home. So nice you want to live there. With this influx of money, maybe you will soon. Confident and trusting now, you tell them to keep reinvesting your share. You get monthly paper statements you show your wife and want to carry in your wallet like a proud father carries photos of his kids. Of course, it'd be selfish to keep such a boon to yourself. It's not a zero-sum game, after all. More carefully vetted investors, your bestie assures you, means bigger returns for everyone. So you start selling this plan like Girl Scout cookies, anywhere and everywhere. The gym, the office, hell, the dentist looks like a guy with some serious capital burning a hole in his lab coat. You become downright evangelical, singing praises and inviting others to share in your glorious salvation. Then the day arrives when you're ready to withdraw, cash out, exchange your chips for that obnoxious little cloud fast car. For a stack of greenbacks, certain give you back problems from sitting lopsided on an engorged wallet. But there's been a minor administrative error. It'll take a few days to get that much cash around. So you wait. Two weeks later, you become concerned. You try calling your pal two, three times a day, but he's out of town away on business. Voicemail doesn't say when he plans to be back. And then one morning while shaving, staring at yourself in the mirror, it dawns on you in its full ruthless glory. You've been fucked. The money you entrusted to your brother-in-law, instantly and forever no longer best buddy, played an instrumental role in what's known as a Ponzi scheme. The initial returns that dazzled you so completely weren't returns at all, but the funds from other hapless investors making their way around the circuit. At some point, your money touched their hands too just long enough for them to fondle it, to make it real, to make them believe like you did. Because the profits were so good, of course you reinvested them. What kind of fool pockets his winnings and leaves the table at the beginning of a hot streak? And then you got comfortable, careless, satisfied with paper statements a child could have forged, you became a paper millionaire. Sure, it felt good, but the high was as brief and superficial as a $20 lap dance. The vivid hues of your Technicolor dreams leech away, the images of Malibu mansions and fountains pumping gallons of Paul Roger vanish, replaced by visions of crowded trailer parks, 
cobweb lace floral drapes, and peeling wood paneling. You feel cold, gut seized by the sinking feeling of losing control, but mostly you feel irredeemably stupid. You've been conned like a senior citizen new to the internet, and you've dragged everyone you know and love down with you. You'll have to find a new dentist now. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, that, that was fantastic. I love that. And, uh, <laughs> so, and, you know, and I guess we haven't even talked about that. Uh, we want to make sure everybody is aware too, that these books, both of them come out October 1st, which I'm shooting to have this episode out cup on the Tuesday before that. So that way everybody will have a few days to hear these samples and then, uh, they can join your, uh, you're, you're doing a live Facebook live launch. Is that correct? That's yes, right. that's correct. Yep. Fantastic. And the book should be ready, you know, that week. So if you uh, set it off that day, I hope people can get their hands on it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, pre-orders will be all set for it. Huh? Yep. Fantastic. Well, that's, we like to have that here on the show. So that way everybody can <laughs> click that link in the show notes and uh, pick up both of these. Matt, uh, what, what was your driving force to get you to want to get this first novel out? Well, you know, like everybody, you know, a big dream to be an author someday. Uh, so that was, you know, I have, I've uh, done a lot of creative stuff and, I, and Nate's the much better looking and younger guy. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm the mid forties guy. Here I am. And, uh, you know, I'd done a lot of things and I kept thinking, well, why am I not just, just hunkering down and actually writing a book? This is silly. And, you know, I'm a dad, so is Nate, you know, full-time jobs for both of us. That's a factor for sure. But, uh, you know, just trying to find that self-discipline. And kind of alongside that, you know, what the heck am I going to write? Uh, I kind of cut my teeth on science fiction and fantasy growing up, um, but also snuck in a lot of uh, fun thrillers, a lot of Tom Clancy, uh, Ian Fleming, those kinds of things. Big James Bond movie fan too. And uh, about the time I started to get serious about writing again, I... Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a current events junkie. And uh, one of the things that was, uh, it's been quite a while now, but one of the things that was the uh, inspiration for this book was the disappearance of that Malaysian airliner uh, that disappeared. Mm. And, you know, that was, that really set off the, the gears turning about well, what, what could have happened there? What, why would, why would a, an airliner just disappear? And I think now we know that it's probably just, you know, a bizarre situation. But at the time, there were a lot of conspiracies around that. And uh, I took that and ran with it. Uh, that, that's kind of the setup for the book. There's a situation where uh, some terrorists hijack a plane, and then shortly after takeoff, the plane explodes. Uh, but, but what you learn in the, in the prologue as you figure out how this uh, whole thing kicks off is that uh, those terrorists are dupes, and a secret organization has actually used them to find a guy who was on the plane who has a, uh, a deadly virus, throw him out the door with one of their operatives and then blow the plane out when they were gone to fake his death. So with that idea, the thing is kind of set in the, into motion. Wow. Okay. Now, prior to writing this, what was your experience with like terrorists and uh, bioweapons, that kind of things? Did you have any kind of background there? No, I don't, I don't have any professional background other than just uh, both, both Nate and I have some journalism background. And uh, so, you know, reading everything I can get my hands on, I'm, I'm nothing more than an armchair expert in that sense. But, uh, but paying attention to it forever. I, I can remember when I was, uh, I think it was, uh, I was, must have been about 14 years old, glued to the TV at Tiananmen Square uh, protests. Oh, yeah. And pretty young for a kid to be spending his summer watching an old tube TV for hours. And uh, that kind of stuck with me. You know, I, I, I went to school to be a, a creative writer and pretty quickly figured out I like this journalism thing too. So uh, I was always uh, international uh, policy and 
and international events junkie, but uh, that's kind of carried over for, for many, many years. So you have definitely earned the coffee mug that says, pay no attention to my search history. I'm a, that's I'm a that? writer. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, in fact, it gets even worse because uh, the, the thing about the, uh, the, the guy on the plane that they're trying to grab, the reason they're grabbing him is he's got a deadly virus. And so I did all kinds of research on uh, bioweapons and designer viruses and uh, horrible things like Ebola and Marburg, which is very close to Ebola. And uh, all kinds of other stuff about, you know, how to blow up a plane or, uh, you know, what kind of things that Chechen terrorists actually do, uh, who they are, what they're up to. Yeah, it gets pretty weird when I look at some, even some of my bookmarks I laugh about now looking back at some of the research I gathered. Oh my gosh. Uh, Nate, how about uh, some of your research? Anything uh, exciting or that uh, kind of threw you for a loop? Well, I, I, I think what surprises most people when they ask about this kind of thing is that um, a lot of what I wrote down in Get Idiota that seems so ridiculous and so over the top. They're like, where do you come up with this stuff? Um, a lot of it's actually based on fact. I mean, some of the crazy stuff like, you know, cartel leaders who actually have their own clothing lines or that enlist uh, singer-songwriters to write um, songs uh, about about them, you know, and about how they're these uh, folk heroes, that sort of thing. It's, it's uh, such a bizarre, uh, but it's all reality. I mean, this is exactly how it is down there. So it's funny to me uh, to see how people react to what they perceive to be strictly, you know, uh, the clever, creative mind when in fact, a lot of it is just based on reality. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to hear a little bit about this writing club now, because I know you're in two different states. So I'm guessing this is an online writing club. It is now. We're, we uh, were Zoom before it was cool. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Nate did used to live uh, in Des Moines, where I'm located, and a couple of our other members are. And we've had oh. some people uh, over the years come in and out. Uh, I'm not the original member. Nate Nate's one of those. Uh, the group tends to stay around four people. Um, and we've kind of had people come in and out and some pretty good writers, uh, some indie folks, some other folks who do essays and other things too. So shout out to Tracy and to Sarah and Chad and, and Thad. So there's, there's some other veterans in there, but it, it really is a, uh, certainly we're all friends very much so, but we treat it as a very traditional writer's workshop with the uh, valid criticism that entails. And, uh, you know, so hearing from everybody else, spending some time on, on longer pieces. Yeah. It's not just a cheerleading session. There's, there's some real work done there. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I love my writing group that I have. I'm, I'm hoping to, since the pandemic kicked off and we had to switch to zoom, my work skills have changed. So I haven't been able to attend one since then. So I'm looking forward to hopefully, uh, as of this recording tomorrow night, hopefully I'm free so I can get on there, but uh, we'll see what happens hopefully. And, and I don't know, I'm looking forward to a live one, one of these days and getting back in person. Yeah. Same here. We got to get Nate back down to the point and, and do that in person soon. <laughs> uh, Matt, what was a, uh, what would, what did you find most challenging writing this, uh, this first book and the advice you would give to somebody who's doing the same thing right now with their first book? Well, that's a tough one. Um, you know, the discipline is the main thing, right? I mean, you, you just have to, to, to accept that, that you're going to make mistakes, that you're going like, to have parts of things you write that you don't like. Giving up is the only thing you can do wrong, really. I mean, that, that's, not a, that's not a, nothing new. Everybody hears that same advice, but it's truly, it's truly real. And, um, you know, when you're writing your first book, you've got to figure out how in the world you write a book, right? You know, we hear mm. a lot of discussion around uh, pantsers or plotters or gardeners or architects, 
And, you know, there's validity to a lot of those things, but everybody's a little bit unique, right? I think most people are some kind of hybrid of those kinds of terms. Uh, maybe they're, they're stronger in one camp or the other, but the reality is you got to figure out how to get through, you know, whatever that length is, 60,000 words, 90,000 words, you know, those, those can vary, but uh, it, it really just takes that hard nosed effort to do it. And a couple of tricks along the way that I found were uh, sort of silly, but very helpful. This is kind of embarrassing what I'm going to admit right now. So, there were two little tricks that I would play on myself. One was that I, I just by dumb luck, um, I stumbled onto this, um, this, this instrumental album by Pat Metheny, who's a jazz guitarist. And I, I happened to hear about it. I was just driving in my car on a commute one day and heard it on and reviewed on NPR. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And so I just, you know, I like music. So I, I figured out where to get that and downloaded it. And I would listen to that while I was working on the book. It had this kind of, you know, sort of, edgy feel. It was sort of almost European. That's even how the reviewer described it. And uh, a little bit, a little bit of a, a, a Middle Eastern kind of uh, a tinge there too. And mm. after a while, uh, one particular track uh, on this album was the thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it became the sort of chant for myself as I would, I would just listen to it on repeat as I wrote. And the song itself uh, is, has a kind of a fugue structure. It kind of repeats itself at the beginning and the end. And it has the structure of a novel. It has this structure where it has this introduction and things are going on. And then it kind of goes into a, a longer period where things are looser and stranger. And then it rebuilds back up to itself in a climax. And it's in a really incredible piece. And it's like, this is the theme song of my book. I just love this. And then there's the more <laughs> embarrassing one. This is silly, but it's true. Um, for what, the, the book I have is, is three uh, point of view characters. And one of them is an older CIA veteran who is uh, running things from Washington, D.C., and he's, he's a little bit older in life, uh, looking at his family and things. And, you know, I do that trick that I think a lot of people do where they sort of imagine up in their minds, what does this guy look like? Or maybe even what I did, which was sort of think about which actor would play this guy. And he was, he was just unequivocally, he was Al Pacino. There was no way around it. It was definitely Al Pacino. And Al Pacino has a movie, Any Given Sunday, you know, where he's a football yeah. coach who's kind of down on his luck. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene in that movie where they're in the championship or they're in the uh, uh, playoffs and they're, they're getting killed by, their, by the other team. And there's just this palpable dread in a locker room at halftime. And then Al Pacino does what Al Pacino does and gives this amazing, uh, you know, soliloquy about how they're going to figure out what they're going to do with their lives via football. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, famously, he has this line where he says, every inch in front of your face. And I would just get frustrated and I would pull that silly video up on YouTube and just think, okay, yeah, I'd get pepped up by Al Pacino's scene in that movie. <laughs> and sure enough, I would think about that lot, that line a lot, you know, inch by inch. That's, that's you know, that's what he says. That's what football is. And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of what writing is, too. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. I, and I don't, I don't find that embarrassing at all. I think that's, uh, you know, it, it's a nice little cheerleading section that you have in your pocket that you can pull out to amp you up and get this scene done, get something written. And, and, uh, that's pretty awesome. I think that's right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, gentlemen, where can we find and follow you, Nate? Uh, I'm, I'm on most of the primary, uh, social media avenues. I, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, the works. I've got my own website, uh, natebranzo.com. So I, I'm sure if you put in a search, it's me or one other guy from Vegas. So there's only so many Nate <laughs> All right. And Matt? 
Yeah, pretty much the same story. I have uh, MatthewSnyder.com. Uh, strangely enough, Matthew has one T, not two T's. Uh, I just tell people my mom can't spell. You know, that's just how it goes. <laughs> uh, but I'm also active on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Uh, you can find me out there and maybe even link to it from uh, my, my website if you want to get started there. Outstanding. All right. And we'll make sure to have links for all of this in the show notes, everyone, so that way you know where to go to follow these, these wonderful guys and uh, to pick up their books, which are available right now. Go pre, pre-order them. And then uh, they're going to drop right into your uh, Kindle box or uh, if you're getting the print book, uh, October 1st. So thank you so much, guys. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, I can't imagine a better way than to do uh, a first ever for the show by having the two of you on here with some incredible books. Well, we genuinely appreciate you having us on. Yeah, absolutely. It is my pleasure. So ladies and gentlemen, time for the second book of the episode. You're getting a two for one today. I'm going to hand the floor over to Matt Snyder with the Hidden Vector. Chapter 3, Tangled Web. Talavi, Georgia, 4.20 a.m., Thursday, May 9th. Ethan paced through the dark of the tiny safe house to shake off jet lag that stirred in his head like a drug. Corso's call mingled with it, his scratching voice still swirling inside Ethan's head. He stopped in the narrow hallway between the Spartan bedrooms and leaned against the cool plaster wall, rubbing the sleep from his eyes. Two hours wasn't enough. He buttoned his shirt in the dark, feeling each button with his fingertips from habit. She wouldn't tell him anything. Corso had to know that. He ran his fingers through his greasy black hair that lay flat against his head. He couldn't remember when he last ate. His mouth was dry. This is a lousy place for interrogation. In the next room, Wade kept watch over the feisty woman he now knew as Seda Alashkanova. She had said nothing as Ethan rifled through her belongings in the car. He found three passports tucked into a canvas shoulder bag. One was Russian and poorly made. The photo wasn't even her, too round-faced and heavy. Of the other two Georgian passports, one was an excellent fake. When he read her name aloud, her eyes shifted subtly at his. He took it as a confirmation. Her name was Seda. Ethan's eyes adjusted to the dark bedroom. Wade stayed awake, his eyes locked on Seda. She sat up on the bed, her wrists zip-tied to the steel gray bed frame. Wade sat in an old kitchen chair, leaned up against the wall on two legs. The thing creaked under his brawny bulk. She's awake, Wade said. She say anything? Not really. Mumbled something a couple of times. I don't think she likes me much. We need to talk, Ethan said. Okay, she's not going anywhere, are you, Jamila? Wade patted the bed as he stood, and she shied away. They stepped outside into the silence of the dead town's outskirts. The hum of an electrical box that occupied the heart of a tangled web of wires over the roadway filled the air. A light fog had settled down from the mountains nearby, and they stood close in the cool damp to whisper. Corso called, Ethan said. Yeah, I heard. What's the word? He said, we're done. Langley doesn't like losing a guy. We surrender her to GIS. They're pulling us out. Wade was quiet. He snorted through his nose as he shook his head. I don't like it either, Ethan said. But that's the official story. Unofficially. Here we go, Wade said, nodding rapidly. Unofficially, I don't think Corso thinks we're finished. We've got about two hours until Sanger's people show up with Georgian intelligence. There it is. Damn. Wade sighed as he crossed the small patch of yard. Man, that isn't a time enough for anything. It's enough. What are we supposed to do with that? We are not getting tough on that woman no matter what happens to Marcus. Hell no. And then just hand her over? This op is all kinds of fucked. Again, he crossed the yard in frustration. Gravel crackled beneath his boots. Not if I'm right about Corso, it's not. Look at it from her perspective. Why talk to us, right? So we make a deal, just like she said. 
She gives us some intel, something to go on. Like what? Doesn't matter. Think. That's for her benefit, not ours. She's off the hook. She goes to her people. She calls her family. Whatever she does, we're right behind. Wade's eyes opened wider. Track her. Get her phone and get it done. Get another one in her bag. The kid's in my room. I'll talk to her and make the deal. Ethan returned to the room and turned on a lamp atop an empty dresser. Seda sat up, squinting in the yellow light. You understand who we are, he asked. She scowled. He pulled a knife from his trouser pocket and unfolded the blade. She whimpered. Ethan leaned over her and passed the blade in front of her face. He smelled her faint perfume, more musky than sweet, mixed with her sweat. With a flick of his hand, he cut the zip tie on her left wrist. It snapped loose with a crack. He leaned away and cut the right. Sita closed her eyes and rubbed her reddened wrist. Ethan put the knife back in his pocket and sat on the opposite bed. You said we could make a deal, he said. Sita turned calmly, still rubbing the raw skin on her arms. She sat at the edge of her bed with her shoulders thrust back and faced Ethan with a sneer of defiance. I said we discussed deal, she said. I need names. He held up his phone where the screen glowed with the visage of a burly bearded man. It was an image from the hijacking. This man, he said. He flicked his finger and another face appeared. Him, this one. He paged through more of the images, all of them. Seda studied the photos. She shrugged with each flick of his finger. This is deal, what you give me. Her accent drenched each word, but the message was clear enough. Ethan admired her audacity. No doubt it was how she prospered as a smuggler. This was his only shot at leverage. He had to take a harder tack. Let me explain something to you. In about two hours, my colleagues will walk through that door with some friends from GIS. You, you know GIS, he paused, racking his brain to recall and spit out the unfamiliar words for Georgian intelligence service. Sakartvelos davirzis samaksuri? She nodded, her eyes now focused on his. They are going to have many questions about how you help these men come into the country and kill 183 people on that airplane. Do you think they're going to ask you very nicely? She glared at him. So you give me names and you leave before GIS arrives, or you can make a deal with them, your choice. Her lips tightened and she gave him a nod. Take another look. He shoved his phone in her face, looking again through the images. I need names. I need to know their leaders. She pointed at the phone to the heavyset Chechen with a beard like a lion's mane. Kazan Kagarov, he is leader. No other leader, he is strong Muslim, Mujahid. Kagarov, yes, this one is Abdullah Islayev. How you say, cousins. And you know them? You help them cross the border? Of course me. Who else? Men not do. Cousin not like much help from woman, she smirked. Ethan showed her more photos, more faces, watching her intently at each turn. She shook her head. His last photo showed a pair of the hijackers on the gangway and a profile of a third man behind them. She covered her mouth with her hand and shook her head again. Her eyes flared for an instant, and he knew she lied. She feared someone in the photo. Or was it fear for someone? What about others? Are there more in Chechnya like them? No more names, I know, she said. She crossed her arms. Now we deal. I want car. Ethan looked at her quizzically, head tilted. Seda stared back. Her lips were broad, unsmiling. With him, she was stern. Was she like this with Kagarov and the others? Were those even their names? She had panache. As crazy as it seemed, letting her take the car was probably the better option. If they let her walk, the GIS crew would track her down right away. She couldn't get too far. She was bold, not stupid, and she knew her phone was a liability. The car, less so. The Mercedes was as good as hers. He just needed to bargain a little more to maintain the ruse. Then he'd have to explain it to all the Georgians. They wouldn't like it. You want the car? You need to give me more. What more, she said. Ethan had her then. Her face lifted and he knew she was in her element as a bargainer. Time to close the deal. You tell me. Where did Kagarov get explosives? Who do they work with? Are there more attacks planned? 
I do not know this. Fine, no car. It's a long walk home. Seda cursed at him, then tapped her finger against her lips and thought. Ethan waited. Behind him, Wade entered the room. She glanced at him where he leaned against the wall, but she failed to notice him drop her shoulder bag on the floor beside the dresser. There is bomb maker in Chechnya. She explained rapidly. Her clumsy English tumbled out to explain there was an old Saudi bomb maker with one hand missing who made many kinds of bombs for Shahuda. He knew she spoke in half-truths and local lore. There probably was a bomb maker. He might have even been Saudi, and maybe he really was hiding in some mountain village called Chateau. Ethan couldn't dismiss it all, not entirely. It mattered more that she accepted the deal on its face. He nodded and said, the car is yours. Sita stood, the corner of her lips curled into a rice smirk as she rubbed her wrists again. At the door, she gestured to her bag at Wade's feet. Once he moved, she muttered something as she rifled through it. Chill, everything's there, Wade said. She seemed satisfied. Keys, she held out her hand. Wade fetched the single tarnished key from his pocket. Hold on now, we gotta get our things out of the trunk. Outside, the rising sun tinged the broad valley pink and orange. Mist still clung to the wooded lots around them. Seda crossed her arms at the open driver door while Wade pulled his unloved Druganov rifle wrapped in a coarse blanket from the trunk. When he slammed the trunk hatch, Seda started the car. The Mercedes protested with its familiar screech that broke the morning quiet like an alarm. Ethan watched from the doorway as Wade eyed him, nodding slightly. The car's tires spit gravel at them and she sped off to the northwest. They would see her again soon. Safe and unharmed, he genuinely hoped. He hoped much less for the Mercedes. Ethan and Wade waited in the main room of the squat safe house for Sanger's officer and their GIS escorts to arrive. There was nothing to eat. Wade had found some stale crackers neither of them would try. A stained coffee kettle with no coffee in the cupboards teased them, so they simply sat in the morning light practicing their narrative of Seda's wild escape. Our story is I'm watching her while you're sleeping, Ethan said. I'm sleeping, you're on watch. Right. You want to look like the jackass here? Wade's grin broadened. No, go on. I'm loving this so far. I look out that back bedroom window and she hits me from the side. I'm down. She runs for the car. Uh, okay, okay. What about the key? Wade asked. She gets it from my pocket. And we already emptied the trunk when we got here. Right. Wade looked out the window thinking, what about your sidearm? She left it. No, no, it was on the dresser and she ran out without realizing. Okay. And I'm still sleeping until that damn car starts up. I think that covers it, okay? Agreed, Ethan nodded. Except one thing. What? She hit you, man. Hard enough to put you down. Do it, Ethan said as he turned sideways. Wade knew how to hit. He spent five years as a Marine scout. Before that, he had his share of fights on the streets of Houston. This was going to hurt. Ethan winced and shut his eyes. Wade's smile faded. Sorry about this, man. Wade's fist ignited a bright light in Ethan's head. He stumbled from the blow. The pain burst beneath his eye and a wave of heat surrounded his head. He felt his pulse pounding on his cheekbone and he grunted through gritted teeth. Son of a bitch, that hurts. Wade's smile returned, and he doubled over in high-pitched laughter. Remind me never to piss you off again, Ethan said, holding his cheek. Within the hour, a pair of silver sedans arrived at the house. Ethan stood to let them in, but the door opened without his help. A blonde woman wearing aviator shades and a dark blazer entered. She moved with confidence, her hair tied tight against her scalp in a ponytail. He recognized her as one of Sanger's operations officers. Maria Hessler, she reached out her hand. Jesus, what happened to your face? Ethan shook her hand and winced. Another man, well-dressed and portly, filed in behind her. This is Georgie Gilashvili, Georgian Intelligence Service, she said. Please, call me George, he said, shaking Ethan's hand. He bowed slightly to Wade, who rose to greet them both. So, where's the asset, Maria said. Ethan and Wade eyed one another warily. She's gone, Ethan said. What do you mean, gone, she said George. Escaped, Wade answered. She got loose and knocked the hell out of Ethan here. 
She got the key and took off in the car. You know, the one you didn't see outside anywhere. Maria stood with her hands on her hips. My God, you're really not joking, are you? She tilted her head and removed her sunglasses as she examined Ethan's face more closely. More than you bargained for, huh? Ethan raised his eyebrows, though the effect was lost um, with the swelling bump under his right eye. George interrupted. Which way did she go? We must find her. West, I think. She's probably going back up the gorge where we found her. Maybe to make a move for the border, Ethan said. George was already out the door. Outside, he chattered and George and his three comrades, pointing at the cars and then westward. They stood, stern-faced, glaring at the Americans as George rattled through the explanation. In his gray suit and bulging belly, George seemed out of place amid the operatives in their rolled-up sleeves and denim pants. Ethan followed Maria out of the house. She spoke into her phone, already sharing the bad news with Sanger. Too little time for introductions, I am afraid, George told Ethan. He gestured quickly at the men. Rezo, Levon, and Yosef. These are my finest men, you will see. Now let us get into the cars quickly and hunt our... What is the word? The one called Rezo responded coldly. Pray. Yes, pray. Let us hunt our prey before she gets into the mountains. We have two cars and two of you who know her face. We can hunt two times. Maria pocketed her phone. He's right. Looks like you've got a temporary reprieve. You and Wade are the only ones who can identify her. You read with me. Wade, you go with Georgie. Ethan wanted to object, but splitting with Wade now became part of the plan. They would play along and keep in contact however they could. Still, despite his aching cheek, or maybe because of it, he felt better with Wade around. Ethan sat in the back of the silver Toyota alongside Maria as they scoured the outskirts of Talavi with their Georgian counterparts in front. Yosef drove. Levon twisted his head looking for the dark blue Mercedes. Talavi was a scenic mountain town. Manicured shrubs sprouted between the quaint little houses with broad roofs, much like the safe house he'd just left, though better kept. They passed the train station but found only arriving morning travelers. Row after row of grapevines passed by his window as they drove past rustic stone chateaus on the far side of town. Maria spoke some with Yosef and navigated from the back seat. Levon joked with her about it, but Ethan couldn't follow. Georgian was impossible for him. He spoke Russian well enough. Georgian sounded nothing like that, and he understood almost none of it. They drove on, scanning the roadways. I'm sorry about Eldridge, Maria said. Ethan stared out the window at the passing vineyards and side roads, half-heartedly looking for the Mercedes. So am I. Alan isn't happy about last night. You three really kicked a hornet's nest. He had some choice words about the whole idea. He doesn't like this situation any better. We can't afford to lose this asset. I don't work for him, Ethan said. I don't need a lecture. I wasn't lecturing you. Trust me, you'd know if I was. Call it a suggestion. Ethan looked at her askance. The gold-rimmed shades concealed her expression, but he read her anyway. She, was, she and her sharp jawline were all business. She provoked every man around her in every way a confident and attractive woman could. He knew women like her. He'd married one. At home, she was somebody else. And she had something to prove every minute on this job. You're never wrong, are you, he said. She huffed. Are you? Not usually. I'll bet. Look, it wasn't a good day. Now's your chance to fix it. On that count, she was right. Still, he couldn't trust GIS enough to admit they were tracking SEDA electronically. He had to think this through. He closed his eyes and thought of SEDA. What would she do? She was too smart to use the phone. Maybe once to call for help and then she'd toss it. She'd probably do the same with the car as soon as she could find another ride. This wasn't just a deal gone wrong for her. She couldn't lay low and let it blow over. He saw it in her face in the bedroom. Sita knew this changed her whole scheme. She had to disappear. She had to know Kagarov and the others were up to something drastic. Why take the risk? He doubted it was the money. Maybe she was closer to these men than she let on, or closer to one of them. I need a map, he said to Levin and Yosef. You guys have a map of the area? They handed him a folded road map from the glove compartment. The map was older, the paper brittle, but all he needed were highways. Mountains forced Seda into only a few options. 
He studied the serpentine lines and the curling Georgian script. She wouldn't use her regular routes up through Chechnya, he reasoned. Seda had to leave the country or face the wrath of the men in the car with him and the rest of their comrades. The downed airliner was a black mark on their country. They would have no patience with her and less kindness. His eyes scanned the snaking roadways of the North Country. She needed money, she needed a new vehicle, and a route that no one would expect. He found a little airplane icon on the map just north of Talabi. He showed Os of the map. Here, go north. He couldn't call it a plan, really. The trick was staying on Seda's trail without putting her in the hands of GIS. He could send them north somehow so he could pursue his best guess on her actual direction. It wasn't a plan, it was a gamble with too few cards left to play. Within a half hour, they approached a lone airstrip barely a mile long where it shot out to the west from a cluster of small buildings in a rust-eaten metal hangar. A bulky Soviet biplane with a broad yellow stripe poked its nose into the air outside the hangar. Several trucks and a handful of cars were parked near the hangar entrance, but he saw no sign of the Mercedes. What's that you said about not being wrong, Maria asked. As they passed the hangar, the dusty Mercedes came into view parked next to a stand of beech trees, its trunk wide open. Two men inspected the vehicle, one wore coveralls splotched with oil. Ethan tapped Maria's thigh and smiled at her as they pulled up alongside. She shook her head in disbelief and exited the car. Levin and Yosef accosted the men, and the two mechanics waved their hands and shouted back as, as the argument grew. Ethan paid them a little attention while he inspected the car. There was no sign of Seda. She left nothing behind. At least she took the bag. Ethan wandered around the car, kicking the dirt and grass. Behind him, Maria joined in on the argument. Ethan looked in the nearby trees. On the ground, he caught a glimpse of silver gray, Seda's phone. Ethan picked it up and walked back to the group. They're saying she traded the car for an old truck. She woke them up and gave them 200 Larry, and then she took off, Maria said. Found her phone. I'll see if I can get any recent calls. My money's on her heading north for the border. Of course she is, Maria said. She's a smuggler who knows the terrain up there. Let's go. Except Seda wouldn't go north, not if his hunch was close to right. I'll stay here and wait for Wade. He's got our gear, and he can help me with the phone. Hopefully we can get something useful out of it. Then we can catch up with you. What? Not going to happen. Get in. Sanger will send us both home if I let you out of my sight. Besides, you have to identify the target, remember? She called for Levon and Yosef, and they climbed into the Toyota. Ethan crawled into the back seat and tinkered with Seda's phone, careful not to reveal what it held. Yosef turned the ignition. Ethan looked out the window at the mechanics who ran away from the car, their eyes wide with alarm. Ethan followed their gaze. The exact twin of their Toyota charged directly at the left side. For a fleeting second, he stared at the oncoming driver and recognized Rezo's face. Glass exploded around him. Ethan slammed into Maria and his vision went black. Maria screamed. He tasted blood. Ethan lay staring at the car's ceiling. A horn sounded steadily, faintly, as though it were miles away. Rezo, he heard someone say. Rezo, Ratom. They were shouting. A shot rang out in his ears. Two more and another, then silence. He couldn't move. And there you go, everybody. Nate Granzel and Matt Snyder reading sample chapters from Get Idiota and The Hidden Vector. Both books are going to be available October 1st. That's when they're having their Facebook Live release party, so you can find the link in the show notes. Make sure you click over there and join the party. It's going to be a lot of fun, uh, but they are both available for pre-order right now. So check that out. Don't forget to also click the link for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when I'm back with an all-new author, a brand new book, and an all-new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real, real soon.
This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.